chapter 30, and I'll read verses 1 through 33 for us. Isaiah 30, verses 1 through 33. Let me remind you that even this is God's good and kind and gracious word to you. Maybe especially this, as you see his, his anger at his children for their rebelliousness, but also his great love for them as well. Ah, st- oh, yes, 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 I'm sorry. <laughs> ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame. Through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. An oracle on the beasts of Negev, Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent? They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who sits still. And now go write it before them on the tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for me for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seer, do not see, and to the prophet, do not prophesy what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions. Leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. For thus says the Lord, the God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses, Therefore, you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem you shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When he turned to the right or when he turned to the left, 
Then you will defile your carved images overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things and you will say to them, Be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread for the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkey that, will, that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with a shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the people a bridle that leads astray. You have a song as in the night. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept in gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and a storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod and every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres battling with brandished arm. He will fight with them, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king that is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and ask for yourself an understanding. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. We pray that we would have life by it, as you have promised that you would give us the light of Jesus Christ in this passage, that we might see him and behold him and desire him over everything else in this world, that we might throw away the carved images of our hearts, that we might desire you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wonder what it, what it would have been like to be the first person to receive an appendectomy. You know, we enjoy the benefits of the marvels of modern medicine. But there was a time when medicine, and especially surgery, was all very theoretical. At some point in history, someone went to a doctor complaining of a pain in his stomach, and the doctor responded with something like this, Ah, I know what the problem is. You see, there's this weird little appendage that looks like a worm that hangs off your lower intestines. Now, we aren't sure what it does or why it's there, but I bet that's the problem. Now, with your permission, I'd like to cut you open and to remove that little thing to see if the pain goes away. And the patient would no doubt, or no doubt responded with something like this. So, Doc, you're telling me that I have some kind of worm inside of me that is stuck to my insides. And even though I'm in a great deal of pain, you want to take a knife and open me up and poke around in my insides just to see what the problem is. Well, someone had to be the first person to do it. And I imagine that that decision was a hard one to make. 
The reason, of course, is that the treatment for the disease seems so much worse than the disease itself. In our passage today, the Lord is diagnosing His people with a spiritual disease that will only be corrected through major invasive spiritual surgery. The kind that seems quite contrary to our natural sensibilities. The question that Isaiah is asking his original audience and he's asking us is, will you give your permission for the Lord to fix what is ailing you? And some of you may balk at that terminology because the Lord is sovereign and he doesn't need our permission to do anything. And that is absolutely true. But it's also true that the Lord delights when his children desire his help and he doesn't have to force them into obedience. Well, Isaiah is writing to the nation of Judah this morning in the midst of a national crisis. And you might be thinking, what does this have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you because Isaiah puts his finger on the fact that the major political problems of Judah have a spiritual root. And so it is with us. There's nothing that we do that is not at root a spiritual response to a spiritual issue. And that means that something like the air conditioning breaking, which is fresh on my mind, while it presents physical complications, is also, more importantly, a field on which your soul's spiritual condition is tested and revealed, it's encouraged, or even possibly destroyed. And it also means that there's not one area of life, one single nanosecond of your day that isn't part of the Lord's sovereign plan either to call you to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time, or to sanctify you more and more into the image of Christ if you have already been justified by His grace through faith. All right, so let's dive into this chapter. The first thing we're going to see is the rebellious plan of His people, how they respond to this political problem and the plan they make. You see that in verses 1 through 7. All right, so we begin this chapter, and there's a problem. You see there, the Lord says that His children are stubborn, And any of you who have had children understand the Lord's frustration. You can tell a child, don't touch the stove, it's hot. And then they get all mad at you because you had the audacity to protect them from their foolish actions. Well, that's how the Lord is addressing his children this morning. We're getting God's view of things once again. He sees his children and their problem much differently than his children see their problem. To them, to the Judeans, their greatest problem is that Assyria is on their doorstep. But God says, no, your problem is actually much, much deeper and more important than that. Well, how do we know? What did Judah do? What were they doing? Whenever the Assyrians came knocking, Judah made a plan. And what did they do? They went to Egypt. Notice the word that Isaiah uses to describe their plan at the end or or in uh, the middle of verse uh, one. The ESV translated this way, that they made an alliance with Egypt. Now, that term can mean they weaved a web or it also can mean that they weaved a covering for for themselves. It has a variety of different meanings in the Hebrew. But the idea is that this alliance, this plan of theirs, was their attempt to 
enmesh themselves with Egypt for their protection or to cover themselves with Egypt. They try to cover themselves with the plan of their own devices. And they run to Pharaoh. And you need to remember, this is a spiritual action, especially since Pharaoh considered himself to be a god. They were running to another god for protection. In verse 6, Isaiah looks Uh, This is really funny. He looks at the caravan of goods and riches uh, that the Judeans were sending uh, down to Egypt through the desert of the Negev, the southern portion of the nation of Israel. He's looking at them and he says, here's an oracle against the beast of the Negev. And he says, you know, in this desert region, there were lions and lionesses. At the time, lions roamed all over the Middle East. And he said, also, it's the place where there are adders, which are very venomous uh, uh, serpents, and then uh, other kinds of snakes that uh, dart around and are quick uh, and can strike quickly and are very dangerous. And he says, here's what Israel or what Judah is like. They have sent donkeys and camels on a dangerous trek through a land full of animals that will wipe them out quickly. It's kind of an illustration for the foolishness of what Israel is doing. They have gone down to Egypt for help with a problem, and Egypt will not be able to help them. Look at the end of verse 7. You actually are told, Egypt's help, help is worthless and empty, and God has called her Rahab who sits still. Rahab is another one of those uh, words that has a variety of meaning. Of course, we know uh, there's a woman named Rahab in the destruction of the city of Jericho. Uh, but that's not what it's referencing here. It also has another meaning. It's a sea monster. Rahab was a sea monster in some literature. And the sea monster uh, is essentially what he's saying is that this is a sea monster that's been uh, killed and destroyed. And so it's just kind of a, it's, it's a dumb and useless animal. So he says, that's what I have called. That's what God has called Egypt, a dumb and useless monster. Israel sought help, basically, from a large catfish that had been drug out into the banks of the Mississippi River. And if you've ever seen one of these large six-foot catfishes, you, you, know, you look at one, it looks imposing, but out of the, the, um, uh, the water, it can do nothing. And essentially, that's what God says Egypt is like. So do you see Judah's deep spiritual sickness? Do you see their disease? They are blind to God and His protection. And more than that, they are actually blind to God's great love for them. God had been overwhelmingly patient with Judah. And you need to remember at the beginning of of Isaiah in chapter 7, where Judah went to their northern nation, the nations just to their north of Israel and Syria for help from the Assyrians. But that came to nothing. Their northern neighbors were destroyed quickly. And now... They go to their south. They go to Egypt. But the one place they don't run is to the Lord. And it's because they see their problem in merely political or material or physical terms. And the reason if you have, they reason if you have a political problem, well, you should seek a political solution. But the way God works, the way he wants his people to operate in this world is to see that if you have a political problem, what you ultimately need is a spiritual solution. So I have a challenge for you. I want you this week to go out and find someone in our world 
that thinks that our city, that our region, that our state, that our country, that our hemisphere or our world is in pretty good shape. I would venture to guess that you will not find that person. But even if you find that person who thinks that we're in pretty good shape, I want you to ask them a follow-up question. How close are we to everything falling apart? And I would dare say that none of us think that everything is pretty much okay in the world. But even if someone does think that everyone is okay, they would t- or that everything is okay, they would tell you that we're in danger of falling off a cliff very quickly. How have we gotten to the place where after 6,500 years or so of recorded human history that everything and everyone feels so bad off? How is it that we, who live in the oldest republic that has ever survived with the greatest resources in human history, are so angry and, dare I say, scared of what the future holds? Well, could it be that we have traded our security in the Lord for the material security of our republic. Perhaps we have failed to see that our real national dilemma is the same today as it has always been, that we are great sinners in need of a great Savior, not that we are great citizens in need of a great political ruler. Maybe our greatest problem isn't political, but spiritual because we don't see our need for a great Savior. There's a deep spiritual problem for the people of Judah. And they make a plan with Egypt to save themselves. Well, what's the resulting punishment? Part uh, Point two in verses 8 through 17. Well, I want you to see that I, I kind of left something out on purpose in, the, in uh, verse 1. Look at the very end of verse 1. God says, you know, they're my stubborn children. Uh, They carry out a plan, but not mine, says the Lord. They make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. Judah had hoped that their alliance with Egypt would lead to their security. But from God's perspective, what it had actually done, instead of giving them real security... It has endangered them even more because it has caused them to add sin to sin. And that is the inevitable result of man's attempt to secure himself, whether it's his attempts are political or economic or health-related. They all end up in insecurity. And you see how this works. Isaiah, uh, you see this in, in verse 8. Um, God says to Isaiah, go and write this Testimony down that it's going to be a witness against them forever. He says in verse 9, they're rebellious children, they're lying children, they're unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. They're, okay, so uh, they are lying, they're rebellious, they're not willing to listen. And we would think, well, maybe they're just not religious enough, but they are not irreligious. They are very religious. And they would likely say that they are very spiritual people, even possibly spirit-led in some sense. In some sense, um, but that's why First John four one, the apostle John says, "Don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every person that says they're spiritual." And another uh, way to put that, uh, but test the spirits to see if they're actually uh, trustworthy and true. 
You see, the people of Judah had their prophets and they had their seers. They had their preachers, so to speak. But they only wanted their preachers to preach the things that were smooth, easy things. Do you get that? They went to church every week, but they didn't want to be provoked by the word of the Lord. So they set up their their puppet prophets or preachers to say whatever pleased them. Recently, a friend who's sitting in the cry room right now sent me a lecture by a fairly well-known Protestant theologian who says he believes in the authority, authoritative nature of Scripture, who acknowledged that the Scriptures teach against LBTQ plus practices, but who nevertheless says that the final judgment of human action isn't what God's Word says, but what our personal experience, our feelings dictate. That's a fancy way of saying that truth is whatever you want it to be. And those who say such things, who believe such things, this is what they're like. And this is what Isaiah tells us. That they despise this word and they trust in oppression and perverseness. In verse 12, you see that. So again, do you get that? The world says, and you understand this because we live in this world, That to not allow someone to express their sexuality is to oppress them. But there's nothing more oppressive to a man or a woman made in the image of God with all the dignity therein to have all the restraints of the depravity of their evil hearts removed from them. That is why we speak against all kinds of sin. The LBTQ plus form of sin and adultery and fornication, and the use of pornography, and the fact that abortion is the unjust taking of a human life made in the image of God. It is murder. But so is racism. It's an act of murder of the heart, denying that a person is made in the image of God. And all those who refuse that message... Their fall is going to be just like it's described in verses 13 and 14. It's like a wall that is bursting and it's smashed to pieces like a pot that can't be, has no shards left over for itself. Is there any hope? Well, the Lord says absolutely that there is hope. In verse 15, where does the hope come from? Mine says the ESV, and this is a terrible translation. He says, in returning, In repentance is what it should say. In repentance and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That is to say that turning from the things that you think will save you to the Lord will save you. For those that identify as homosexuals, turning from their belief that expressing their sexual preferences will give them freedom and turning to the Lord is the only real way to freedom and salvation. To wait for the Lord to fulfill them with good things. Not to run away from Him, but to be quiet and to trust in Him. He will be their strength. He will be your strength as well. But that's true of the married man who runs to pornography, or to the young man who seeks to fulfill his, de- his desires in his own time, in his own way. 
To us as natural people, it seems like foolishness to wait for the Lord's timing to give us the satisfaction that we so eagerly want. When you can create, quickly create that mean for your, those means for yourself. But here's what the Lord says, that those pursuits seeking to find your desire and fulfill your desire in your way actually will only leave you dissatisfied and wanting more. Sin adds to more sin. Anyone who devises their own means of salvation, going to Egypt, for example, will find destruction. But those that wait on the Lord for His salvation in His time will be saved. And then the last thing you see is the reversing promise in verses 18 through 33. And this is a a beautiful section uh, that I don't have time to look very deeply in. Uh, But I want you to see how over the top God's love for His people is. The people refuse to return. They refuse to repent. They rather would rather have their horses and, and, and their chariots. And God says, well, if you want a horse, that's fine. You're going to be fleeing on that horse. But then all of that kind of turns around in verse 18. And he says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him to say that God is a God of justice means that he is a God who is true to his promises. God waits because he desires to show mercy to us. Essentially, in these verses, all of the curses that he had mentioned up to this point are all going to be reversed. Where there was weeping, all weeping will be gone. Where there was silence from the Lord, he's now going to answer. Where there was hunger, there's going to be satisfaction. And it goes on and on and on like this up until verse 33. All of the enemies are wiped out. The Lord raises up from his, uh, to show his strong arm in defeating his enemies. But perhaps the greatest promise is found in verse 20. And he says this, The teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. This is a reversal of spiritual leadership. The people had their prophets and they were blind guides. But there's going to be a time for his people that one teacher will come. One teacher will instruct his people in the way that they should go. You get the image of the teacher that's behind his people who are blind. And he says, don't go to the left or to the right. Listen to my voice. Follow my instructions. I'm here. I'm with you. God's great promise is not to solve all of our problems right away. Although there is coming a time when all of our problems will be solved, praise the Lord. But here and now, the great news for us is that the teacher has come. God has given himself in a person. The reality is, is that you don't need a better plan. You don't need more resources. What you need is a person. And Jesus Christ is that person. He reverses the promise, or he he reverses the curses by giving us himself in Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? Have you met him? He's here for you today. 
So the Lord has come to you today with scalpel in hand and he's saying, you have a sickness and you don't even know it because you have given your heart over to an idol or to idols. And the only way to cure you is to cut it out deep into your heart, into the secret chambers of your heart that cardiologists don't even know exist to remove the thing that you're hoping in for your security. But it's really killing you. The Lord says, will you trust me to remove it? The good thing is that when the Lord removes that idol from your heart, from the cancer that is killing you, he doesn't leave the space empty because he puts himself in that place so that you're filled with the Lord. That is what you need this morning, to be filled with the Lord. Let's pray and ask for the Lord to do that for us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for giving us this word today. Lord, we need for you to go deep into our hearts to remove the idols that we don't even know that are there, the things that we run to for our security. Father, I pray that you would help us, that we would see uh, Jesus Christ and his love for us, that we would not run to our own devices or our own plans, but that we would flee to Christ, repent of our sins, trusting in him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.